0: Well, as our musicians take their place in our congregation, I invite you to take your Bible out and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. That's something that I say almost every single sermon, take your Bibles out, because we as a church believe completely and wholeheartedly in the sufficiency of Scripture alone. We don't believe in the sufficiency of the messenger We don't believe in the sufficiency of our technology. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So we look to Scripture. We look to the Word. And we are in a series entitled Summer of Hope where we've been looking at the Scripture, at a variety of Scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament alike that inform us about the great hope we have in God. And really, two weeks ago, we turned a corner as a way of saying it, in our study up until that point we've been we had been predominantly looking at reasons we can have hope and why the bible tells us to hope well 2 weeks ago we kind of turned a corner and we started looking at results of hope how should our lives look if we truly are a hopeful people well, we've spent 10 weeks laying a foundation for a reason to be hopeful and now we are looking at the fruit of being hopeful. So two weeks ago, we considered the fruit of joy. And just a short verse, Romans 12, 12 says this, rejoice in hope. <laughs> what does that mean? If we hope, if we have hope in God, if we have hope in the promises of the gospel, it will have a consequence in the believer of rejoicing, of joy. Joy is simply the noun form of the verb rejoice. So exuberant joy ought to be a consequence of hoping in God. I told you last week, it's an oxymoron, joyless Christian. That's an oxymoron. Well, last week we looked at another consequence of our hope, and that is love. We looked at the uh, letter written to the church in Colossae in Colossians 1. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Why do they have this love? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. See the cause and effect there? The cause of their love was their hope laid up in heaven. The effect of their hope was they had love for all the brethren. And so just as there should be no such thing as a joyless Christian, there should be no such thing as an unloving Christian. This is the consequence, the result, the fruit of hope. Well, this morning, we're going to look at another result of hope, and I've entitled this message, The Boldness of Hope. The Boldness of Hope. You see on your outline, and even on the screen there, I've listed the entire chapter of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I commend it to you, encourage you to read it. We're going to really focus in and zoom in on one small verse within that chapter, and that's verse 12. Notice what Paul says, very simply. He says, since, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. <laughs> well, there's, there's a question there. First of all, we see the cause and effect again, just like we saw last week. Since, that's the cause. We have such a hope. Here's the effect. We are very bold. So the question arises here, okay, if there's this cause and effect of boldness being caused by uh, hope, well, what is the hope? Too, and what is the meaning of boldness here? You may have heard the story about the elderly lady who had tremendous boldness in her testimony for Jesus, so much so that she woke up every morning, and the first thing she did when she got out of bed is she went out on her front porch, and she opened the door, and she would, in a loud voice, proclaim, Thank you, God, for another wonderful day. Or right across the street from this elderly woman, was a rabid atheist, and he got sick of hearing this every morning. So he would be ready every morning when she went outside and said, thank you, God, for a wonderful day. He would say, there's no such thing as God. But that didn't stop her. She kept going out every morning proclaiming, thank you, God, for this wonderful day. Well, one day she goes outside, and she says, thank you, God, for this wonderful day. And oh, by the way, I could use some groceries. Well, the atheist thought, I got her. I got her. So he goes to the grocery store and he buys a bag of groceries and he secretly puts them on her front porch. And after putting them on her front porch, she comes out the next morning and she sees the bag of groceries there. And she says, thank you, God, for a wonderful day and for giving me these groceries. Well, at that moment, he hopped out from behind the bushes and says, ha, I got you. God didn't give you those groceries. I gave you those groceries. Without missing a beat, she said. And thank you for making the devil pay for them. Now that's boldness, right? That's boldness. Is, what, is this what Paul's talking about with boldness here? Proclaiming God's faithfulness in all circumstances, being a witness for Christ. Now to fully understand this hope and the boldness that comes from hope, we need to understand the full context of this chapter, those 18 verses, and to understand the full context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which, by the way, has left many people in a fog. We need to understand the greater context of the full meta-narrative of the whole Bible. So we're going to review the whole Bible. Not all of it, a lot of it. I want us to consider particularly what Paul does here in this chapter is he draws a comparison and contrast between the old covenant given through the law of Moses and the new covenant given through the Spirit of Christ. Let me say that again. He draws a comparison and contrast between the old covenant given through the law of Moses and the new covenant given through the Spirit of Christ. So to understand the supremacy of the new covenant, we need to understand some things about the old covenant. So we're going to go back deep. We're going to need to put our thinking caps on. Let's do that together. Put our thinking caps on. Be prepared for a deep dive into the Old Testament uh, truth and theology. Here's the first thing I want us to consider. Number one, I want us to think about the ministry of Moses. The ministry of Moses. 2 Corinthians 3 is essentially a commentary on Exodus chapters 32 through 34. Those chapters give an account of the people of Israel, the, the children of Israel, their profound act of idolatry, the breaking of God's law, and the consequence, the result of their idolatry. Now it's important to underline this fact that before Exodus chapter 32, not once, but twice, all the people of Israel expressed their commitment to fully obey all the law of God. Let me say that again. The people of Israel proclaimed their commitment to fully obey all the law of God. Let me show you the two times they did this. First, in Exodus chapter 19, this is what we find in In chapter 19, God says, you will be my treasured possession so long as you obey all that I've commanded you. And here's their response. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Watch this. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You fast forward to chapter 23 of the book of Exodus and the same type of promise from God comes again. He says, you will be my treasured possession, so much so that I will give you the promised land as an eternal inheritance for you and your children to come. All I ask is you don't mess with the idols of the world. You don't bow down to idols. You remain faithful to me. And here's how they responded. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So twice there's this corporate confession from the people of God, we will obey all that you command. Chiefly among those was they would not bow down to the false gods of this world that he would be their God. Moving to chapter 23, Moses is on the Mount, Mount Sinai. He's receiving from God the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. And he can't even get to the bottom of the mountain. And these same people that had made such a profession had crafted for themselves a golden calf out of their gold and were bowing down and worshiping this golden calf. They had broken the command of God. They had broken the commitment to God. And though they had broken the law, when Moses finally makes it down to the bottom of the mountain, what does he do? He breaks the tablets of stone in Disgust, And the sin of Israel was of such great consequence that God had determined, I'm going to annihilate them all right now on the spot. That's what he said. I'm wiping them out. We're starting over. Moses intercedes on their behalf. God, do not wipe them out. But because their breaking of the covenant was of such great consequence... Up until that point, God had dwelt among them manifestly in a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night. But because of their breaking of the covenant, because they broke their oath, God says, I will not remain with them in this kind of presence any longer. In fact, notice what he said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 5. He says, you are a stiff-necked people if for a single moment... I should go up among you. I would consume you. Well, what does this mean? God is saying, if the glory of my presence returns among the people, a sinful, stiff-necked people, they could not exist for a nanosecond in the presence of my pure holiness. My presence, my glory, would consume them and burn them to a cinder. So I'm no longer going to be among them in the way I've been Among them. And as a result, God's presence was moved outside the camp, and he would meet only with Moses in what was known as the tent of meeting. And there, Moses, separate from all the people, would meet with God and would there mediate with God on behalf of the people. And in that tent of meeting, it was there that Moses prayed a bold prayer. He prayed, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God said, I I can't show you my glory, otherwise you will die too. But I will hide you in a cleft of the rock. I will pass by you, and I will proclaim to you my name, and thereby proclaiming to you my nature. That's exactly what he did. And for a second time, there on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses his commandments carved on tablets of stone. And the ministry of Moses is this. He became, again, the mediator of God's presence to the people. He became the mediator of God's glory to the people. In fact, notice how this is described towards the end of Exodus chapter 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people, all the people who said, we'll never disobey your word, all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Why were they afraid to come near Moses? Because they understood this concept. The glory and the presence of God Brings judgment for sin If we get close to moses and he's just got a reflection of that glory boy, we could be consumed in an instant And this is an important theological point listen the presence of god means judgment for sin So my friends if you ever pray God, I want to get closer to you. You need to know this Getting closer to God means he will deal with your sin. He will confront your sin. Unrighteousness cannot exist in the presence of perfect righteousness. So Moses, what did he do? He veiled his face to protect them. He veiled his face that had the reflection of the glory of God to assuage their fears albeit completely rational fears. Moses' ministry was to mediate the glory of God, the presence of God, rather than exposing his people directly to that glory. So back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians is essentially a commentary on all that I just told you, the ministry of Moses. So as we fully try to grasp this, let's see this next thing. Number two, I want us to consider the contrast of covenants the contrast of covenants. And again, this is what Paul does here. He looks at the old covenant delivered through the law of Moses and the new covenant delivered through the spirit of Christ and he compares and he contrasts them. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind as we think about this, as we think about the new covenant as he's going to describe it here. The new covenant was not God's plan B. The new covenant was never God's response to uh uh-oh covenant one didn't work Anytime we do anything anytime we embark on any kind of endeavor any kind of pursuit any kind of trip We need to think of backup plans sometimes don't we My son trent is pursuing education and and employment. He told me a couple weeks ago I got about 400 backup plans if plan a doesn't work That's wise because life experience teaches us we need to have backup plans God has no backup plans his plan A always works. <laughs> he will accomplish all his good pleasure according to his purposes that he's designed. Here's a couple of instances where God, we know this is true because in the season of the old covenant, he predicts and promises the new covenant. He does it in a couple of places. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God promises this Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In Exodus chapter 36, he gives a similar command and promise of a new covenant. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, God promised... To his people that a new covenant is coming and this new covenant would far surpass and eventually supplant the old covenant And the reason the new covenant surpasses the old covenant is not because the new covenant has better laws Not because it has better rules that are somehow easier to follow Here's why the new covenant surpasses the old covenant Because the old covenant the laws were written on stone the new covenant the laws of god are written on human hearts What a glory What a great promise. How does God do this? How does God fulfill this promise to write his law upon human hearts? Here's how he does it. Through his Holy Spirit. To the Spirit of God. That's why he says there in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And this promise of the new spirit, of the Holy Spirit, inaugurating the new covenant, it was set afire on the day of Pentecost, we find recorded in Acts chapter 2. And this new spirit and this new covenant began to be expanded through the ministry and the work and the preaching and the missions of the apostles in the first century. And friends, 2,000 years later, the the work of the new covenant is being done through every local church that boldly proclaims the gospel. God is still today By the power of his spirit, writing his law on people's hearts. He's still today, by the power of his spirit, doing the spiritual heart replacement surgery. We were watching House the other day, Amy and I. Y'all ever watch that show? It's crazy. And they were doing a heart replacement. I told Amy, it's so real life looking. This is incredible. They're taking somebody's heart from this cadaver and put it in this person's orifice. Of so much greater... Miraculous work is the spiritual heart replacement and by the Holy Spirit of God he does this supernatural heart surgery and here's the amazing thing about this new covenant and the spiritual work that is accomplished God does all the heavy lifting God does all the heavy lifting It's not that he's going to help us or motivate us or encourage us to obey his law. He gives us a new heart. (laughs) He writes his laws upon our hearts. Did you notice the first person pronouns in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? The first person pronouns I will make a new covenant. I, God says, will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God is the initiator here. God is the one who unilaterally accomplishes this work of the new covenant. And so notice verse 3 of our focal text in 2 Corinthians. As Paul's writing to this confused church in Corinth, he says, You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but... With the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It is the Spirit who does this miraculous work of writing God's laws upon individual human hearts. And Paul goes on to say that this new covenant, which is supernaturally performed by the very Spirit of God, it brings about, verse 12, boldness. Boldness. Why? Why would this bring about boldness? Friends, it's not because we have a greater human ability. It's not because we have this improved moral capacity to follow the law of God. It's because of the unilateral work of the Spirit. So after establishing the source of this new covenant work, the Holy Spirit, he then lays out three particular comparison and contrasts. Three contrasts he lays out between the old covenant delivered through the law of Moses, and the new covenant delivered through the Spirit of Christ. He shows the limitations of the old covenant in compared to the grandeur and the greatness of the new covenant. Look at him with me. First, in contrast to the old covenant, he tells us the new covenant gives life. It gives life. Notice the end of verse 6. For the letter, that's the letter of the law, kills. But the Spirit gives life. Now, here's the thing. Most Jewish rabbis in the first century misrepresented the purpose of the Mosaic Law. They misrepresented it. And they said, here's what you've got to understand about the law. If you obey it to the letter, in addition, you obey all the rules, the rituals, the addendums we have added onto the law, if you strictly observe it, don't miss an, a single beat, this is the way of salvation that's a lie. And I'm afraid that probably Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish Pharisee, highly educated, probably taught this same thing until his conversion. But in the new covenant, he came to realize that the purpose of the law was not to make us acceptable to God, but rather the law was to reveal to us our our utter inability to be accepted by God. And what that creates in everyone who measures his life up against the perfect requirements of God is, oh no, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in dire straits. I need someone who can keep the law to be a redeemer. Enter Jesus. This is the purpose of the law. The law brings judgment. The new covenant, life of the Spirit, brings life. He goes on to expand on this contrast in verses 7 and 8. He says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Even though there is glory associated with the old covenant, and there is, because it's the law of God, therefore, it's glorious. It's His righteous standards. The new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit, is of greater glory. Why? Because the old covenant brings death. The new covenant brings life. Here's the second contrast Paul draws between the old covenant and the new covenant. He says the new covenant, it produces righteousness. It produces righteousness. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed in glory. The law of ministry of condemnation, because again, it shows people they're utterly sinful and they're completely desperate in need of rescue. The law reveals our inability to please God. It shows the vital necessity of being rescued. And this is what was happening every time Moses came out of the tent of meeting and his face was shining and he covered it with a veil. It was condemning the hearts of the people. They knew. Glory of God, presence of God, it's a condemning reality But here, this new covenant, it brings righteousness. See, all the old covenant, all the law could do is condemn us in our sin. But the new covenant, the Spirit of Christ, it actually brings righteousness. Why? Because at that moment of conversion, the very righteousness, the holiness of Jesus is applied to the repentant sinner. And we now have the righteousness of Christ. We are justified. We can Stand before God. We can boldly come before the throne of grace. We can be in his presence, not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done. Thirdly, the new covenant is superior because it is permanent. It's permanent. He makes this contrast in verse 10, for what is, was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. You see, the fading glow of the countenance of Moses from the glory of God was symbolic of the fading covenant of laws and the Old Covenant. Again, there are no plan Bs. It was always God's plan for the Old Covenant to fade away. It was never intended to be His permanent purpose. Why? It could never bring about ultimate salvation. Only the New Covenant is permanent. And listen, the New Covenant in the Spirit of Christ will never be replaced. The new covenant in Jesus will never be superseded or supplanted. This is God's final message to the world. Trust in Jesus and be saved. And that really brings us to the whole point of the text, the whole point of this sermon, and that is this, number three, the cause of courage. (laughs) What causes this courage? What causes this boldness? And look again at verse 12, our focal text. For since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What's this such a hope? The hope that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant. This kind of hope that produces boldness is that the new covenant promises as given in Jeremiah and Ezekiel 36, these unbelievable promises where the law of God is no longer just written on tablets of stone and just out there in the abstract. The law of God is now written on human hearts. This creates boldness. This creates boldness. Courage. This creates followers of Jesus who are willing to take great risks for Christ's kingdom. And this hope in the new covenant produced boldness in Paul. Think about it. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is seeing the new covenant happen. The new covenant promises coming to life right before his very eyes. From city to city and town to town. He saw it happen in the city of Corinth, the, the town to whom he's writing in this church. He saw it happen in Ephesus. He saw it happen in Antioch. He saw it happen in Iconium and Lystra, Macedonia, Philippi, Athens, Thessalonica. He saw it happen town after town, city after city. Listen, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, was the tip of the spear of the new covenant, making inroads into all the world. This is why he's so excited. This is why he's talking about his ministry of the new covenant. This is why he has such courage and boldness, because he's seeing the old covenant pass and the promises of the new covenant being fulfilled before his very eyes. The long-awaited, long-expected day when Holy Spirit of God would descend from on high... And indwell the hearts of men? Unthinkable. It's happening. It's happening. And the Spirit of God is taking the message of the gospel. The message that God has sent His one and only perfect, pristine, holy, righteous Son to become human flesh to be tempted in every way we are tempted yet without sin and thereby being the perfect sacrifice who would die on that Roman cross to take the punishment for the sins of the world. This promise of the new covenant, salvation, is being applied to people's hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this made Paul excited. (laughs) This made Paul courageous. This made Paul very bold. He sees God's assembling a people for his own possession from every tribe and tongue and language. He's doing it. He saw God establishing his kingdom. He saw God bringing forth true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And I'm afraid we're so used to this reality 2,000 years later, it doesn't quite grab us with the same excitement that it grabbed Paul. We're so used to. But I want you to just imagine, again, this highly educated PhD in Jewish studies, former Pharisee, the excitement and the thrill of his life and he sees the new covenant starting through his ministry. He knew that every city he went to, regardless of the hostility and the persecution he faced, God would do his work. God would accomplish his new covenant promises, and this fueled him. In fact, it was right here in the city of Corinth where Paul was writing to that he had gone into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Corinth, and he had proclaimed that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and they reviled him. They ran him out of the synagogue. Get out of here with that garbage. So he determined in Corinth, I'm turning my focus from the Jews to the Gentiles. So he begins to preach this same gospel to Gentile, to pagans, to people from all types of idolatrous backgrounds. Same response, getting reviled, getting persecuted. So he says, I'm done here. I'm leaving Corinth. I'm going out of town somewhere else that's going to receive my message. But that night, God speaks to him in a vision. I want you to notice what God said to Paul in the city of Corinth, the same Corinth he's writing to. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Here's why. Number one, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. Why? For I, this is God speaking, I have many in this city who are my people. And then what did he do? He stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. He was ready to get out of town, pack his bags and go. God says, don't go just yet, Paul, because I have many in this city who are my people. Now, had they been converted yet? No. Had they believed the gospel yet? No. Had the Holy Spirit applied the truth to their hearts? No. But God sees the end from the beginning. And he says, guess what, Paul? They're not yet converted, but you go on preaching because they're going to be converted. They're going to come to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to write my laws upon their heart. I have many in this city who will come. This Was the such a hope that gave Paul great boldness that caused his obedience to the gospel call. What he has here is a complete hope in gospel victory. You need to know something. Every time we share the gospel, every one time we speak of Jesus. Every time I proclaim it from the pulpit, regardless of the response, we are 100% victorious. Amen. We are triumphant every time we speak the good news of Christ. Like Paul told this church in Corinth, the exact same thing one chapter earlier. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always <laughs> leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, Everywhere. Paul says, We're on a victory lap. We're making a victory march. We're in triumphal procession, but you're getting beaten. You're getting stoned. You're getting shipwrecked. You're getting nailed. You're getting hit. You're getting abused. We're in victory because he's the one that does the work. And friends, the same is true for us. We can have incredible boldness in our evangelism, we can have great courage in our missions endeavors as a church we can have boldness as we seek to defend the faith once delivered to the saints why because as long as we are faithful to the message we have a 100 percent success rate god's the one who does the increase he's the one who does this spiritual heart surgery now where does that leave us i want us to see as we close three consequences of this boldness from hope. So I did a word study on this peculiar word that's translated boldness here in our focal passage. It's the Greek word parasia. And that word and its cognates is used 40 times in our New Testament Bibles. 40 times this word is used. And so I read every passage where this word translated boldness is used. And, And I discovered and I gained a clearer understanding of the nuance of meaning here in this, this word boldness and really kind of whittle them down to these three consequences. Now, I want to preface this by saying this. Listen, this particularly applies to boldness in our gospel witness. The new covenant promises, the promise of triumphal victory, 100% success rate, this engenders boldness as gospel witnesses. It doesn't mean, you know what, I think I can clear this water hazard on hole nine from the tee box and make it onto the green. That's not the kind of boldness we're talking about here, the risk-taking. This is not the boldness where, you know what, I I think I can uh, use this particular strategy in my chess game. It's not the type of boldness where we are so outspoken about our particular political positions. It's not even the type of boldness where we call out all the lazy bones who don't put their shopping carts back in the Walmart parking lot. That's not the kind of boldness he's referring to here. It's boldness in gospel witness. What does this produce in us? Three consequences. Number one, we become unafraid. We become unafraid. Ask yourself this personal question. Is fear preventing me from speaking the word of the gospel? Is fear preventing me from telling someone about Jesus? Is fear of what others are going to think about me? Fear of rejection from people I respect? Fear of reprisal? I may even lose my job if I speak about Jesus on the job. Are these fears a consequence of, of this idea of sharing your faith? When we have boldness produced by hope, we become unafraid. We see this in an example of Paul's life. Uh, He's just left Philippi. He's gone to the city of Thessalonica. In Philippi, he was once again persecuted, hostile rejection, riot ensues. He's run out of town on a rail. He goes to Thessalonica, faces some of the same things there, and he writes this to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 2. He says, but though we had already suffered And been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness, there's our word, in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Much conflict. But you know what? Paul says, I'm unafraid. Bring it on. Why? Because I'm 100% successful in all God wants to accomplish. When we have this kind of boldness that's produced by our hope in the new covenant promises, It means we're unafraid. Secondly, we become unashamed. We become unashamed. I would say the opposite of boldness, an antonym for boldness is one, fear. We just talked about that. Another opposite of boldness, I would say, is shame. This is being ashamed. I don't want people to know that I'm a Christian. I'm ashamed of going to church in front of my peers. Shame. Surely, Paul, writing to the church in Philippi from a prison cell in Rome, awaiting his trial for crimes against the Roman Empire, surely this would cause him to, you know, kind of tone down his message. Surely, this state of being would cause him to shut up about the exclusivity of the gospel. No. Notice what he wrote to the church in Philippi from the jail cell. He said, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. They can kill me. I'm not going to shut up talking about Jesus. And this word that's translated courage here in Philippians one twenty, exact same word that's translated Boldness in our focal test. He says, but with full boldness, with full courage, I'm not going to be ashamed. The new new covenant and the promises of the new covenant work in us a boldness where we are unafraid. We're unashamed. Thirdly, we become unambiguous. Unambiguous. You know what ambiguity is, right? Being ambiguous means you're vague. You're not very clear in what you're saying. You use language in such a way that after you get done talking, people can't really pinpoint, what did they just say? A lot of words came out of their mouth, but I'm not real sure that I understand exactly where they landed. The word "parasia" in Greek has a particular nuance of meaning that's not clear in our English, and we can see it in a particular encounter that Jesus had with the Jews in John chapter 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Same word, Parasia translated courage, translating boldness. Here it's translated plainly. In other words, being bold means plain talk. Being bold with the gospel means plain speech. It's amazing how in the 21st century, it seems particularly, people have learned to say things about God, to say things about spirituality, to talk about the man upstairs with such ambiguity that you can't tell if they're a Christian, they're a Muslim, they're Hindu, they're Sikh. You can't tell. Boldness means you're plain. The gospel is clear. Here's the deal. I've told you this before, but it bears repeating. If for some reason a devout Muslim were to walk into our church service this morning or a devout Hindu or a devout Buddhist. And if they leave this service having not been offended, then it wasn't a Christian sermon and it wasn't a Christian service. The gospel is an offense. If all we ever talk about is vague generalities like loving one another, which we've already talked about today, if all we ever talk about is, finding meaning in life discovering your higher purpose doing unto others as you would have them do unto you living in such a way that you become a better you all of which by the way are consequences and result of the good news of the gospel if we talk about those generalities but we never get to the point that Jesus is the one who produces these things in our lives it ain't a christian sermon it's not a gospel message Jesus, the great redeemer who came to purchase lost sinners is the only means, the only way, the only truth to any purpose, to any meaning in life. These are the consequences of boldness. We're unafraid. We're unashamed. And friends, we are unambiguous. We use clear language. And if you lack this kind of boldness in your life, it may just be you need to remind yourself about the gospel promises. You need to remind yourself about the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit of God is doing spiritual heart surgery on people. And every time you proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, you are 100% victorious. I'll close with this. You've probably heard in this Olympic season we're in that the Olympics this year added several new events to. The Olympic Games. They added, for instance, skateboarding is a new Olympic event. Three-on-three basketball is a new Olympic event. Surfing is a new Olympic event. Another Olympic event that was added is um, that got my particular attention is sport climbing. And in this sport climbing, there are really three uh, events in sport climbing. There's speed climbing, there's uh, bouldering, and there's lead climbing. And the one that I found fascinating is the one you see on the screen there. That's a representation of Speed climbing and essentially here's how the event goes There are two climbers that are on the ground side by side They wait for the horn and they have to ascend a 50-foot wall They have to scale this wall and touch a sensor at the top And whoever touches the sensor first they're the winner of that round They need to know these guys are scaling this 50-foot wall in under seven seconds (laughs) It is fascinating But do you notice there something about this American who's doing speed climbing in the Olympics? He's tethered to a rope. He's tethered to a rope. There's somebody else on the other end of that rope who's pulling it as he ascends that wall. He's willing to take great risks to leap from one handhold to another because somebody's holding the rope. I think you get the idea. We can take bold risks for the gospel because we have a rope of the new covenant promises that the Holy Spirit is writing the law of God on people's hearts, that he's converting people from death to life, bringing them from darkness into light. And guess who's holding that rope of the new covenant promises? The God of the universe. And friends, church, we can take bold risks for the gospel. We can take bold risks in our community, at our jobs, as you start to school, students, in the world. Because God is holding the rope of the promises of the new covenant. May we be a people like that. That leads to my last thought. Confidence in the new covenant cultivates